Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Would you hear with me the word of God? A mikkam of David. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Would you bow with me? Father, we ask in the moments to come, that we would be reminded that the pinnacle of our faith, the greatest joy, is not the things that you give to your children, as wonderful as those things are. God, the the pinnacle of faith is to belong to you and to delight in you. We ask, God, that we would see that this morning and that we would be renewed, we would be encouraged, we would be strengthened in our inner man to pursue godliness and holiness, not not for our sake, but for the glory of the one who calls us by name and allows us to call him my Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 16 is a a midcom, which, you know what that means? Me neither. Biblical scholars are, are... unsure of the meaning of the word. It's used in this psalm and then in Psalms 56 through 60. It's a little header. It's probably some sort of musical notation. If you read the other mitcoms, you'll find sort of this common thread of a crisis for which God's help is required. So whenever you read a mitcom, that's, that's, that's a theme that I see that's in common. There's a There's a crisis that exceeds the ability of the one who's writing the psalm to take care of the crisis. So the Lord's intervention is required. And here in Psalm 16, David faces our biggest enemy, death. The book of Hebrews tells us that people are enslaved by the fear of death, Hebrews 2.15. It's been this way since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and were exiled into the wilderness. Men have spent their lives fearing something that they simply cannot avoid. But with this psalm, David does not strike a tone that is somber or full of doom or despair or fear, but rather of joy and delight and confidence. In verse 10, he says, I'm going to go go down to Sheol, but Sheol's not going to hold me. I'm going to go to the place of the dead, but death will not hold me. I won't see corruption. And so what David is showing us is to have confidence in the face of death. There's three things that we must do. We must take refuge 
in the Lord God alone. We must trust in the Holy One who is raised from the dead. And finally, we must live for Jesus as he lived for us. The first point this morning covers the first eight verses, and so it's the longest point. So I'm going to have to ask for your attention. You have to give me a good stretch here before you get to go, ah, point two. All right? So hang tight. Point one is the longest point. And then, then we're on the home stretch. So we must take refuge in the Lord God alone. Do you notice how the psalm begins in verse 1? Preserve me, O God. The word preserve is the same word that in the Bible is often translated to keep. As in, Adam and Eve were to keep the garden, to cultivate and keep the garden. As in, the Israelites were commanded to keep God's law. As in, the priests were commanded not to keep, but to guard the the door into the temple sanctuary. And so the meaning of the word is something like to preserve or to keep or to guard through something so that it, it does not get violated or hindered or harmed in some way. God, you keep me. And then we get down to verse 10 and we recognize he's saying, keep me even through death. Keep me even though I go into the grave. God, you keep me for I cannot keep myself. The reason for such a bold request is on account of, do you see the word for there? Or because I take refuge in you. God, keep me because I've taken refuge in you. Don't keep me because I took refuge in uh, finding the fountain of youth. Don't keep me because I took refuge in going to the gym every morning at five o'clock, unlike all the other people. Don't, don't take Don't preserve me because I take my vitamin every morning. Preserve me, God, because my refuge is in you. To take refuge means to flee to someone for perfection, for protection. It means to trust with the entirety of one's being. Psalm chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. In those verses, God promises to guard the one who takes refuge in him. So now... David is simply asking God to do what he's promised to do. Guard the one who rests in God. And as we see in verses 2 through 8, to take refuge in God means taking refuge in no one else. It means there is no plan B. It doesn't mean holding on to a confession of faith when you were a child over here and then doing everything else that you can to avoid death over here as though it depends on you. It's to cling to God and to God alone. Look at verse 2. The one who takes refuge in God calls him not just God, but Lord. And not just Lord, but my Lord. He's not just a Lord or the Lord. He is my Lord. To take refuge in God, God has to be my Lord. Not somebody else's Lord, not my granddaddy's Lord, but my Lord. Not the man upstairs, not Allah, not the grand poobah, not Mother Earth, not good vibes. None of those gods will save you in the face of death. Only Yahweh, the Lord, my Lord can save. There is no other name given among men under heaven by which you can be saved. It is Lord and the Lord alone who saves. To be safe in the one true God, church, you've got to know the Lord by name. This is why we are urging 
This church, we are urging and asking God to call out missionaries because there's no other name that people can be saved by. You've got to know the Lord. And when the Lord is really your Lord, look at the second line of verse 2. He will have no rivals. God's our only option. When you really trust in the Lord, you don't need spiritual Aflac. You know what Aflac is, right? You get medical insurance, but then when your medical insurance runs out, well, I got Aflac to kick in in case my insurance policy fails. Jesus is not an insurance policy anyway. He's life. But if he were an insurance policy, you would not need an additional insurance policy. He covers it all. He covers you even through the grave. He takes you even through death. God does not fail. Look at the end of verse 2. I have no good besides you. I have no good besides you. Can you say that this morning? Oh, you actually literally said it. That's awesome. But, but can you say that on the inside? Can, can you say, God, of all the good things in my life, none of them comes even close to comparing to you? There's not one that's remotely beside you. Can you look at your bank account this morning and say, God, there's nothing in here that's besides you. My hobbies, my career, my wife, my kids, my family, my house, whatever else that is good, they are nothing compared to you, and I can prove it. I can prove it in my bank account. I can prove it in my calendar. Does your calendar say, God, there's nothing in my life that is good that compares to you? Can you say, God, I'm not wasting my life on lesser goods? Grandchildren, recreation, fishing, golf, financial freedom. Can you say, God, there's nothing good in my life that I have turned into a God that is beside you? There's no other good that I've made God that now soothes my conscience and makes me feel good about my life, but in the face of death will offer me no refuge at all. Church, grandchildren are great. Vacations are great. Retirement is great. A nice bank account is great. But none of that will do you a dime's worth of good in the grave. God alone is my refuge. And for God to be our refuge, He must be our greatest good. Look quickly at verse 3. How do we know that the Lord is our Lord, my Lord? We delight in God's people, the holy ones, the saints in the earth. Not the saints in heaven, right? We're not Catholics praying to saints in heaven, waiting for people to be given sainthood so that we would pray to them instead of Jesus. His delight is in the saints on the earth, which is the people who've been rescued by God. The, the one who knows that God is his Lord can't get away from God's people. He loves God's people. He delights in God's people. Do you see that? All my delight is in God's people. He has a remarkable ability to see the people of God, not as they are on their worst day, not because they had a bad day, not because, oh, I can't believe so-and-so said this, but to look through that to what God is making them by faith, that he's turning them into people who will reflect the image of God for all eternity. His, all of his delight is in the people of God. Do you delight in the people of North Roanoke Baptist Church? I delight in you. 
I can't wait to get up on Sunday morning and to be with you and to have the opportunity to feed you from God's Word. All of their delight is not out on the boat on Sunday morning at the lake. It's not on the golf course, as, as great fun as I had being on the golf course for the first time in like 18 months yesterday. It was great. But all of their delight is in the people of God. The one who has God as his refuge delights in God's people. Not in the hokey club, the rotary club, or people at the local pub, but people who belong to God. For far too many professing Christians' church, I am convinced that the local church is the sideshow, but everything else is the main event. I'll touch base with church when I can, when it meets my schedule, when it suits me. But God's word says, for the one who takes refuge in God, the people of God are all of our delight. Aren't you glad that Jesus took his delight in the people he would save? Praise Jesus that he took delight in what he would make out of us even when we were his enemies. He had every right to complain about us, ignore us, and leave us as we were enemies of God. But all of his delight was in his church. Those that he would purchase with his blood and make his bride. Now, this doesn't mean we don't befriend lost people. If the Lord is my Lord, his people will be all my delight. But we don't know who God still has yet to make his people. Ultimately, there's no joy that compares to watching the Spirit of God do His amazing and transforming work in the lives of His people and letting God use us through our giftedness and our service to be a part of that process. The one who is preserved by God delights in God's people. Now look at verse 4. The one who is preserved by God rejects idolatry. His delight is in the People of God, because all other people are worshiping something that only ends in the multiplication of their sorrows. When Paul writes to young Timothy, he picks up on this concept in 1 Timothy 6.10, and he warns about worshiping money. And he says this, It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, and listen to this, pierced themselves with many pangs. Idolatry, whether it's money or anything else, ends in the multiplication of sorrows. But the one who takes refuge in God is glad even in death. The one who takes refuge in God is faithful to God alone. Do you see that in verse 4? He will not barter or trade or hasten after other gods. He will not support the slaughter of babies or the trampling of employees or the abandoning of a spouse or the neglect of children in the service of financial security or personal comfort or sexual freedom. He has no part in these blood offerings that are offered to idols. The gods of lust and power and fame or fortune do not sway the one who takes refuge in God. As Exodus 23 13 says, he won't even make mention of the names of other gods, nor let them be heard on his lips. Now, perhaps this morning you're thinking, but pastor, what will my life be like if I stop worshiping money or power, or authority or lust or fame or whatever else has your attention today? And to this question in verses five and six, I love what David says. Uh, you get God. I mean, God? 
who rescues you even in death versus these other things that are lifeless and have no power. You get God for your inheritance as the one who fills up your cup with his nourishing and joyous presence in this life. This means that fleeting success in the locker room or the boardroom or the bedroom is no substitute for belonging to God. The whole world is chasing success in those areas, on the athletic fields or in corporate life or in the bedroom. But at the end of the day, success in these areas will not deliver you from the grave. In Israel, the Levites, the priestly tribe, got no portion, no inheritance in the land. Instead, their portion was to be God himself They alone could partake of the best of the sacrifices offered in the temple. And now Jesus has come as the great high priest offering himself as God's lamb, which means we all can get God himself. There is no inheritance more beautiful or more pleasing than to have the Lord God himself as our inheritance. The Lord gives the inheritance. And he is the inheritance. And he assures that the inheritance cannot be lost. Do you see it in verse 5? You support my lot. There is nothing, church, that the Lord could give us. Do you believe this this morning? There is nothing that the Lord could give us that is any greater than himself. Do, Do you believe that? That to get the Lord is the greatest good that I could ever be given. God, if I die poor, if I die young, if I die childless, if I die with whatever other dream that I have unfulfilled, if I have you, there's no greater good that you could have given to me. Do you believe that? Though unemployed, though in despair, whatever the world tells you, you lack. If you have the Lord, you have the one thing the world needs. The Lord is beautiful, David says. Pleasant, verse 6, to the one who takes refuge in him. Is the Lord beautiful to you this morning? And the Lord isn't just a beautiful inheritance. He is also vitally connected to the one seeking refuge. He is not a distant God, a distant Lord. Literally, the Lord has counseled him, no doubt, in his word. And the mind of the one who takes refuge in God keeps on seeking to obey. It instructs him. The word for mind here in verse 7 is the word kidneys. I don't know if you've been around Pastor Hobe long enough to hear him say, in my guts. But he likes to say, in my guts I feel this, or in my guts I think this. And sometimes it's just indigestion. <laughs> but other times, he's, he's, he's exactly right. And, and the kidneys, or the, it's the conscience, it's the place of knowing and of feeling assuredly. And he says, God has counseled me once and for all in his word. And even in the night, my my guts lead me and instruct me in the way of the Lord. I am riveted to the will of God who is my God. And finally, in verse 8, we see that the one who takes refuge in the Lord is the one who sets the Lord, sets the Lord continually, always before him. Kylan Delich put it this way. The Lord is the point toward which 
he constantly directs his undiverted gaze. It's like he's got blinders on. All he can see is the Lord. What does the Lord want? What does the Lord want? What does the Lord want? What will be most glorifying to my Lord? No obstacle will challenge or derail his pursuit of the Lord. The Lord is not his imaginary friend, his genie in the bottle, or his good little psychological crutch. No, the Lord is right there with him. Do you see it at the end of verse 8? At his right hand. Psalm 109 ends with the Lord at the right hand of the psalmist. Psalm 110 begins with the Lord at the right hand of the psalmist. And what's interesting, at the end of Psalm 109, having the Lord at your right hand means that you're victorious over death. And at the beginning of Psalm 110, having the Lord at your right hand means that you will stand over your enemies. What enemy do we have that's greater than death? There's none. To have your Lord, the Lord at your right hand means you are confident in the face of death and that you will stand over it one day. The one who takes refuge in God knows the Lord personally. He is my Lord. He worships him faithfully and joyfully. There are no idols beside him. There is no good beside him. And he lives for him obediently and consistently. His guts lead him to obey and he constantly thinks about the glory of God who is at his right hand. This is the one who takes refuge in God. Now, at this point, if you are like me, you might be thinking, who is that guy? That's not me. Because there's times in my life that I had good that was not just beside God, it was greater than God. I wanted to make a lot of money and be famous and even be president one day, because that would be cool. Not really. I mean, I really did want to be president, but it really wouldn't be cool. Um, so at this point, you're thinking, who is this person? And the person is the Holy One. Not, not all, y'all. It's the Holy One. Which means, church, we've got to look for and trust in the Holy One. This is the second point. We've got to trust in the Holy One who is raised from the dead. Verses 1 through 8 cannot be true of you if you've messed up one time. He worships Him continually. He obeys Him continually. Who has done that? Jesus. Anyone who knows the name Bathsheba knows that this cannot be about David. Because there was at least one time that there was something other than the Lord that David set before himself. Are we tracking? Okay. So to understand Psalm 16, we've got to understand the overall context of the Old Testament. Just because it says a Psalm of David or a Mitcom of David doesn't mean that it's primarily about David. The Old Testament anticipates a son who would be a substitute for sinners and a king who would come in the line of David and never, ever die or be defeated by death he would always be on the throne he would rescue David and anyone else who would trust in him in other words the psalm this morning is about Jesus before it is about David and before it is about you and me Jesus are y'all here church I know you get a little sleepy but this is about ready to get fun I want to I show you this I want to walk back through verses 1 through 8 real quick 
Jesus is the Holy One of verse 10 who dies but never sees decay. Jesus is the Holy One of God who always lived with the Lord as His only good in the world. Verse 2. Jesus is the One who went to the cross because He took delight in those that He would save God's Holy Ones. Verse 3. Jesus is the One who refused to participate in any idolatrous blood sacrifices in pursuit of His temporary pleasure. Verse 4. But instead He poured out His own blood to cleanse us from our idolatry and deliver us into the right hand of His Father where there are pleasures forevermore. Verse 11. Jesus is the one who, although he had no home to call his own when he came to die, is the Lord God Almighty himself who owns it all and is our inheritance, verses 5 and 6. Jesus is the Holy One who continually set his mind on God's counsel even at night in the Garden of Gethsemane as he faced the cross and resolved to obey God's will no matter what it cost him, saying, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is the one who rescues. It is Jesus who walked in such obedient and joyous fellowship with the Lord that he was not shaken even on the way to the cross. He went to the cross with the Lord at his right hand knowing that he would conquer the grave and secure victory for those that he came to save. Look at verse 9. Even when faced with the cross, his heart is glad, his glory or his soul rejoices, and he knows assuredly that his flesh or his body will dwell securely. Why? Because God is his refuge. Do you have that confidence this morning? Is your life hidden in God this morning through faith in Christ? You see, Jesus dies, but God, his Lord, does not abandon him to Sheol. He does not abandon him to the netherworld or to the abode of the dead. His body does not undergo decay or see corruption because Jesus is not in the tomb for very long at all. Verse 10 is the promise of resurrection. We don't see the word resurrection, but the point is, somehow he dies, but his body doesn't decay. How is that possible? On the third day, he's raised from the dead. We know, you say, Daniel, I... I just thought this was about David, man. I, 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 I want to track with you, but help me out. How do I know that you're right? Don't take my word for it. That would not be a good, good plan. But we should take Peter's word for it. And Peter, in Acts 2, preaching his Pentecost sermon, reminds us that David died and he decayed. And then he quotes from Psalm Chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. And then after he quotes the end of this psalm and says it's all about Jesus, listen to what he says. David was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne. And David looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of Christ. Acts 2, 30 and 31. Jesus is the subject of Psalm 16. 
Jesus is the promised son of David and the promised son of God. Jesus is the one who left the glory of heaven, allowing himself to be conceived in the Virgin Mary so that he could be born as a man and pay the penalty for our sin in the currency. It had to be offered human blood. Jesus paid your price and he did it with great confidence because as God in the flesh, he knew his father would not leave him in the grave. In Mark's gospel, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection three times. The disciples didn't see it yet, but David does. He would go to the cross confidently, believing the Lord would raise him from the dead. He would be the Lord's holy one, verse 10, not dying for his sins, but for our sins. Because of Jesus, church, your sins may be forever left in the grave because Jesus conquered the grave. As John Gill wrote, In order to sanctify the grave and make that easy and familiar to saints and to take off the dread and reproach of it, Christ pursued death, the last enemy, and snatched victory out of the hand of the grave so that believers may with pleasure go themselves and see the place where their Lord lay, which is now sanctified. And has become a sleeping and resting place for them until the resurrection morn. And may say and sing in the view of death and the grave, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Jesus knew what awaited him on the other side of the grave. Death could not hold him. Death could not keep him from being with his Lord. And on the other side of the grave was not just coming out of the grave and walking around and living again. No, on the other side of the grave was life. Not just living, but life. Do you see it in verse 11? Though he was going to die, and in his humanity, he was going to enter into the unknown territory of death. He would go into death knowing that the Lord would make known to him the path of life. The Holy One would not be satisfied just to physically live again. No, he looked with confidence beyond the grave to the fullness of joys that come literally, not just in the Lord's presence, but in his face. He looked ahead to pleasures forevermore that are in the Lord's right hand. Death did not have the final say for Jesus, and death does not have to have the final say for you. David wrote this psalm, In the first person, as though it is about him, why? Why can he do that? How is Psalm 16 David's psalm and not just the psalm about Jesus? It's David's psalm because he's writing by faith. David believes that the victory that would one day come through God's Holy One could be his victory as well. David's trust was not in his good deeds or the fact that he was a king or even that he was an Israelite. His trust was in God's Holy One who would come and live a perfect life and die the death that he deserved to die and be raised up on the third day to rip the teeth out of the jaws of death and transform it from doom and gloom into a door that leads to fullness of joys and pleasures forevermore to life with God himself. Only God could make death that. And to face death with confidence. 
We too must belong to this Jesus who has died and been raised in our place. There's only one way, church, that you can face death like this. You've got to agree with God that you deserve to die. You deserve hell, death, and the grave for your rebellion and your wickedness. You've got to stop worshiping yourself and your own lusts and your own pleasures and your own comfort. And you've got to give yourself wholeheartedly to the one who died for you. And when this happens in your life, Psalm 16 can become your psalm like it was David's psalm. And you can know what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, when He comes again, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. And what a glory it will be as we dwell in the face of our Savior and know joys and pleasures forevermore. Church, the proof that you belong to Jesus is not that you prayed a prayer. It's not that you walked an aisle. It's not that you got wet on a Sunday morning. The proof that you belong to Jesus comes in being able to say with David, My hope is in God alone, and I know Him as my Lord. The proof that we live for Jesus comes in being so filled up with the joy and pleasure of knowing and belonging to God that we can't help but live for Him. We've found a pleasure that surpasses all other pleasures that if I have to die to myself and everything else, that's okay because God is my reward. So how do you know that the psalm that David writes about the one who would come and die for sinners is about me, a sinner? We've got to live for Christ, point three. We've got to live for Christ And live as he lived for us. Because Jesus is my reward. Because Jesus is my greatest pleasure. I will gladly die for him. Not necessarily physically right now. But I will die to myself. What does Jesus say? All who would come after me must take up their cross. And what? Die daily. A picture of dying daily is everything that we read in verses 1 through 8. Do we have other gods before God? Do we participate with the idols? Do we delight in the people of God? Do we know that God is our portion and our inheritance? Do you face the call to serve Christ and His church selflessly with joy? Does the way that you live demonstrate that you have discovered the joy that is found in Christ alone? Is your greatest reward knowing and belonging to God? Living for Jesus means we have no other good that remotely comes close to being and belonging with Jesus. It means we take delight in the church on earth. We are happy to serve, love, and support, and even be patient with our brothers and sisters. It means we do not sacrifice our time or talent or treasure in the service of idols that disappoint us, but in the service of Christ who never disappoints. It means we joyfully obey the Lord's counsel even in our darkest hours with confidence that death will not hold us because it could not hold our King. It means that death has been transformed from doom into a door leading to fullness of joy and pleasures forever. 
in the face of Jesus Christ, our King. This morning, I want to ask you, do you know the Lord? My refuge, my resurrection, my reward.